American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Visit us online at ashp.cuny.edu. Gerald Markowitz of John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the Graduate Center discusses Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal and explains to New York City teachers how it changed the relationship between the federal government and the American people. This talk took place on October 23, 2007 at the Graduate Center. Basically what I'm going to try and do um, in this this short time that, that we have, is to talk about two issues. One is, what was new about the New Deal? And in that, I'm going to be talking about the response to the Depression, uh, the relationship of the government to the people, and a theme that you all have been examining uh, pretty extensively today, um, the changes in the definition of freedom. The second major issue I'm going to be dealing with today are the limitations of the New Deal and how uh, the New Deal coalition was a new coalition, it was an unstable coalition, uh, and it resulted in severe limitations around the number of issues I'm going to concentrate on issues related to agricultural policy, southern policy, and civil rights. Um, and end up with the idea that these limitations um, are part of a more general historical pattern, that what gets left undone in one era of history becomes the basis for um, uh, change, for reform, for um, new kinds of ideas in the next era of history. So let's uh, start off with what was new uh, about the New Deal. Um, Let me just say I'm not going to deal, this is a vast topic, as you all who have been teaching it know, and you have to make choices all the time in your teaching. Um, So I'm not going to talk about business policy. I'm not going to talk about labor movement. I'm not going to talk a lot about civil rights, although we'll be dealing with that uh, towards the end. But I want to start off with uh, what many of you started off in the beginning of the discussion this morning, that the response to the Depression um, by the New Deal was uh, very, very new. And if we could uh, show, I I realize I can't see what you're seeing, but it's something on the screen. (laughs) Uh, Maybe I can wander. Yes. Yeah. So this is, uh, oh great, okay. So this is Brian Park. Uh, you can see the 6th Avenue L um, on the right there. And um, this is a hunger line in New York City. Now there had always been hunger in, uh, in the United States. There had always been hunger in, in cities. Um, and in a lot of ways the uh, depression uh, was not the worst depression in U.S. history. Uh, many people argue that the, uh, the uh, depression of the 1870s was much worse. But the United States was much more of an urban society. And so um, scenes like this are repeated all over the country. 
uh, Central Park, as you all know, I'm sure you've used some of these images in, in your classes, filled with Hoovervilles. So that uh, you have major, major um, uh, devastation in cities across the country. Can we have the next one? Uh, this is uh, an abandoned mining town. And um, it is really representative of the kind of devastation that took place across the country, um, where the people were forced out of their homes in cities and in rural areas. People are forced um, out of variety of jobs, whole mining areas, not only in the West, but in Pennsylvania were absolutely decimated. People, uh, towns ceased to exist. As you can see here, um, this town ceased to exist. Next one. And of course, this led to tremendous movement of people. Um, this, uh, here are uh, tenant farmers who are thrown off of their farm and they are, um, you know, heading uh, into uh, great uncertainty. But you have people taking to the rails, you have um, people all over the country on the move in search of work, um, going to new families, trying desperately to make a living, trying desperately to reestablish themselves. So um, these are the kinds of uh, you know, major, major changes that we're having uh, throughout the United States. All this you know. Um, this is not, not, not news. Now, what happens uh, in any kind of depression in U.S. history is that people first turn to private charity. When private charity was overwhelmed, people turned to city governments. When city governments got overwhelmed, they turned to state governments. And um, all of these efforts of turning to government, whether at the city level or the state level, were seen as temporary expedients, not as long-term solutions. And give you an example. Um, New York State, before the New Deal, established an agency to provide relief to people in, in New York State. And it was called the Temporary Emergency Relief Association. Now, this is, it wasn't just that it was an emergency, that, you know, wasn't enough to just call it an emergency relief uh, act. It was a temporary emergency, as if any emergency isn't temporary. But it was emphasizing this idea that um, cities or states were not going to be providing money to people or food to people. Um, in anything more than a, in a very short period of time. But as you know, the Great Depression, all of those efforts by private charities, cities, states, were totally overwhelmed. And there was, therefore, the, for the first time, the federal government intervening in a massive way. It wasn't that the federal government had not intervened before in depressions but not in the massive way that it did here. We're going to talk about some of those in, um, in, in a little bit. Um, so uh, you have the federal government 
becoming a, um, establishing really a new relationship with the people. And this is a, an extraordinary uh, change in uh, U.S. history. You think about it, um, before the New Deal, you did have the draft during the Civil War and World War I. You did have the income tax. Um, that affected a very small proportion of people at that time as opposed to today. Uh, but the major way that people came in contact with the federal government was through the U.S. Post Office. People would go to the post office, they'd get the mail. That was a federal function. And that was the way, really, that, that people interacted with the federal government. But with the New Deal, all this changes. It changes in a rather dramatic way. And one of the uh, first ways that it changes is that about a week and a half after the um, uh, uh, Roosevelt administration takes office, FDR begins his fireside chats. And uh, I'll bet you've used uh, some of those um, fireside chats. And I'm going to play an excerpt uh, from it here. But this is the first time that a president is talking directly to people in the United States. The radio is a new invention in the 1930s. It develops in the 1920s. And people are gathered around the radio in a family. And the, the president of the United States, for the first time, is talking directly to the people. We're so used to this today. We're so used to the, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, pablum of a president, you know, getting on television and, you know, mouthing off to us about this and that, that it ceases to have any real impact to us. But 1933, March 1933, when Roosevelt first goes on the radio, this is dramatic. This is amazing. And this has um, a major impact in terms of changing the relationship between ordinary people and, and the government. Um, maybe we should uh, uh, play this excerpt. And I think uh, you have um, the excerpt. Uh, this is from the second fireside chat. Um, and uh, I think you have the excerpt that we're playing, and this comes in the beginning of his speech. On a Sunday night, a week after my inauguration, I used the radio to tell you about the banking crisis and about the measures we were taking to meet it. In that way, I tried to make clear to the country various facts that might otherwise have been misunderstood, and in general, to provide a means of understanding which I believe did much to restore confidence. Tonight, eight weeks later, I come for the second time to give you my report in the same spirit and by the same means to tell you about what we have been doing and what we are planning to do. Two months ago, as you know, we were facing serious problems. The country was dying by inches. It was dying because trade and commerce had declined to dangerously low levels, Prices for basic commodities were such as to destroy the value of the assets of national institutions, such as banks and savings banks and insurance companies and others. These institutions, because of their great needs, 
were foreclosing mortgages, they were calling loans, and they were refusing credit. Thus, there was actually in process of destruction the property of millions of people who had borrowed money on that property in terms of dollars which had had an entirely different value from the level of March 1933. That situation in that crisis did not call for any complicated consideration of economic panaceas or fancy plans. We were faced by a condition and not a theory. There were just two alternatives at that time. The first was to allow the foreclosures to continue, credit to be withheld, money to go into hiding, thus forcing liquidation and bankruptcy of banks and railroads and insurance companies, and a recapitalizing of all business and all property on a lower level. That alternative meant a continuation of what is loosely called deflation, the net result of which would have been extraordinary hardship on all property owners and all bank depositors, and incidentally, extraordinary hardships on all persons working for wages through an increase in unemployment and a further reduction of the wage scale. Okay. Um, again, what is amazing here in the context of this time is President talking to people all over the country about economic policy, about deflation, uh, talking about you know critical issues that they were faced with every day. And um, you noticed that uh, you have it on your sheet at the end of the third paragraph. He says, we were faced by a condition and not a theory. And for many people, this was the essence of the New Deal, that the New Deal was not going to be providing a grand theory of how to change American society. It was faced by a condition of the Depression, and it was going to deal with that depression. Now, let's uh, admit, uh, as I'm sure you can talk to your students, that um, the New Deal didn't solve the depression. <laughs> it was uh, one of the great ironies of, uh, you know, of, of uh, Roosevelt's great popularity. Uh, it was only World War II that solved the depression. But people felt like that uh, Roosevelt was desperately trying to alleviate um, the major kinds of, of changes uh, at the time. Um, he talks in this speech about providing relief to people. And certainly, um, the, this is the first time that the federal government is providing direct relief, direct money or payments to individuals. It's paid, it had been done before by the states, it had been done by the cities, it had been done by private charity. This is the first time that the federal government um, is doing this. And there were all the arguments, you raised them in your uh, discussion of the letters about uh, what were called the deserving versus the undeserving poor. Um, that there were certain people, some of you pointed out the fact that uh, it was lazy people, for example, who did not deserve to be supported. But this depression affected so many people that that distinction in terms of policy uh, ceased to exist. If people were in need, they were provided with, um, with funds. But the issue 
of deserving versus undeserving poor. The issue of did everyone um, who was poor deserve to be um, supported by the federal government, that did not go away. And you saw that in, uh, in your letters. And it was reflected in congressional debates. It was reflected in the constant cuts that um, major New Deal programs like the WPA received um, almost immediately. WPA is started in 1935. In 1936, Congress is attempting to cut it. And it lasts only, you know, really three or four years before it is cut in massive ways by 1939, 1938. So that this issue of do, uh, does the federal government have an obligation to provide funds to people who are poor doesn't go away just because the New Deal programs uh, were, were established. Um, of course, there were many other issues that um, were, were totally new, and I'm not going to really go into this in, um, in any major way, uh, but Social Security. Uh, the, the idea that elderly people should be um, supported by the government, even though they're putting in their own money into this uh, system. Um, it's, it's not a European welfare system by, by any means. But that idea is an extraordinary idea. And in 1940, before Social Security really gets going, 50% of people over 65 are in poverty. 50%. That changed dramatically over the rest of the 20th century. Today, it's about 10% of elderly people are, um, are uh, in poverty. So this is a, a major, major change. Unemployment insurance, the idea that the, if you lose your job, um, there should be a program for you, um, and you not have to go and beg for charity with a totally new idea. The idea that workers had the right to organize unions, Again, totally new idea. And um, major changes in agriculture. I'm going to talk about that in, in a few minutes. But the idea of paying farmers not to produce um, a system that we are still um, under and a, a major reason why corn syrup is in just about everything we consume. Um, uh, of course, take a, a a brief detour for a second. There are um, great issues of historical interpretation here in terms of why did the New Deal Act. Um, Arthur Schlesinger, who is a professor of history here at the Graduate Center, just passed away, um, came forth with his famous idea of the cycles of reform, the different periods. Uh, you'd have a period of reform and then a period of, of reaction or uh, conservatism, and then reform again. Um, others have talked about the fact that um, enlightened leaders like um, the Roosevelt's came forward in this, uh, in this time and were able to provide extraordinary leadership. Other people have talked about um, the fact that because this was such an extraordinary crisis, it called for extraordinary ideas. And of course, you've read in Eric Foner's—I mean, in Eric Foner's, um the story of freedom—the um, uh, interpretation that there was the demand for change um, from from below. 
um, that there were uh, insurgencies by workers, um, that workers were going on strike. They were engaging in um, uh, violent um, demands for their, for their rights. There was uh, farmers who were uh, you know, dumping milk, who were uh, going to farms that were being foreclosed and standing there with shotguns and stopping the sheriffs from foreclosing. Uh, there were uh, people in, uh, in New York City apartments who were uh, had being evicted, their furniture being put on the street, and their neighbors would all come together and uh, move their furniture back into their, uh, into their homes. Uh, political radicals uh, talking about the, the need for um, revolution. So there were all these kinds of, of changes. And, um, and, and I would say that uh, even the letters that you, that you saw um, were a way of uh, pushing leaders to recognize what they needed to, um, to do to change, that, that you could not have business as usual. And the letters represented um, that, that sentiment um, very, very strongly. Um, to go back to this issue of what was new in uh, the New Deal, I just want to talk for a second about something that's a lot more amorphous than the WPA or the um, uh, Social Security Act or uh, other kinds of legislation like the Securities and Exchange Commission. And that is um, that the role of the federal government is seen at this time as providing hope for the people. That there was a, a sense that the federal government um, could inspire its people um, in addition to being inspired by them. And of course, you all know the um, uh, Roosevelt famous uh, quote from his inaugural address, we have nothing to fear but fear itself, um, which on the face of it, is idiocy. It's, uh, <laughs> it's just, I mean, you know, it's just, it's just nothing. Um, but people took great, you know, hope from that. People felt like, you know, there is someone who is telling us that we don't need to be afraid and, and that this is, um, this is important. Um, and we had, um, it, one way I want to sort of show this is through the FSA photographs. We can put that uh, that one up. Um, the um, you you all uh, I'm sure have used FSA photographs in a variety of ways. You may have even used this uh, photograph, uh, "Migrant Woman" by Dorothea Lange. Um, and the Farm Security Administration was an amazing agency. It uh, provided help to tenant farmers who were thrown off their land. It provided medical care to many uh, tenant farmers and sharecroppers. It really was a quite extraordinary agency. And, of course, one of the ways that we most know it today is through its photographs. And part of the effort of the Farm Security Administration photographs was to tell the story of rural poverty to urban America, and especially middle-class um, urban America. And part of what the FSA photographs were trying to do was to sell the New Deal. 
um, as one of the photographers uh, put it, Arthur Rothstein, it was our job to document the problems of the Depression so that we could justify the New Deal legislation that was designed to alleviate them. And the FSA produced 80,000 photographs, I mean, an extraordinary collection. And um, you know, they are available all in the Library of Congress. They are free. Anybody can go down there and get a quality, you have to pay for the print, but anyone can go down, get a quality print, um, and absolutely free. Um, the, uh, and the other kind of purpose of these photographs, uh, Josh Brown, uh, director of the American Social History Project, has put it very well. He said that the photographs emphasized their subjects' dignity, orderliness, and responsibility in the face of hardship. And looking at this photograph, um, this migrant woman, um, you know, you have that sense that uh, she is not defeated, that, that this is a horrendous situation that she is being put through, but she is there protecting her children, um, she is looking out, um, and there is some feeling in here that there is a hope for a better day. Um, and of course, uh, the reality uh, was that for many people, there was no hope for, for a better day. We can just show this, uh, this next one. This is a, another uh, photograph by Dorothea Lange, not as well known. Um, and these, uh, this, the um, uh, person on the uh, top is the mother with the two children. Um, she has come from Oklahoma to California uh, looking for work. Um, she is not looking straight ahead. She's looking down. Uh, the baby that she is holding is limp. It's not, you know, it's not clear uh, what's going to happen to this to this family. And of course, this was the reality for uh, tons of people in Depression America that they were not helped by the New Deal. They were not um, given hope by New Deal policies. Um, they were uh, you know, decimated by, by the Depression. And so um, you have this you know, very great um, dichotomy between what is, what is happening and sort of the ideology of the New Deal and the reality for, for so many people. And in part, it's uh, this reality gives rise to why there is such a demand for a redefinition of freedom in this time period. Um, and, you know, part of the redefinition of freedom uh, is uh, you, you get from the idea that the Roosevelt administration was inspiring people with a new, new conception of freedom. But part of it was that people were demanding of the New Deal 
that they redefine freedom. Because up until the New Deal, freedom was totally identified with individualism. Individualism was the key component of, of freedom. And the individual had to be protected from the government. The government was a threat to freedom. And what happens in, in the New Deal is you get a reconception of the role of government and reconception of, of the role of freedom. In your book, uh, Eric Foner uh, quotes FDR as saying that life was no longer free, liberty was no longer real, men could no longer follow the pursuit of happiness. Now, this comes from his speech to the 1936 uh, Democratic Convention, and it is most famous as the um, rendezvous with, with destiny speech. Um, it's uh, the speech where he says, there is a mysterious cycle in human events. To some generations, much is given. Of other generations, much is expected. This generation of Americans has a rendezvous with destiny. This goes wild, crazy, crazy. But earlier in the speech, and um, we should uh, play it, and I'll stop it as we um, go along, um, and just to, to talk a little bit about, uh, about these parts. That very word, freedom, in itself and of necessity suggests freedom from some restraining power. In 1776, we sought freedom from the tyranny of a political autocracy, from the 18th century royalists who held special privileges from the crown. It was to perpetuate their privilege that they governed without the consent of the governed, that they denied the right of free assembly and free speech, that they restricted the worship of God, that they put the average man's property and the average man's life in pawn to the mercenaries of dynastic power, that they regimented the people. And so, so it was to win freedom from the tyranny of political autocracy that the American Revolution was fought. That victory gave the business of governing into the hands of the average man who won the right with his neighbors to make and order his own destiny through his own government. Political tyranny was wiped out at Philadelphia on July 4, 1776. Okay, so in this, in this part, he starts off, you know, rather traditional uh, definitions of freedom. We were fighting a revolution to get away from uh, uh, the uh, British crown, and uh, this was a, an attempt to um, free people from the bondage of uh, an oppressive government. Okay. Far too many of us, the political equality we once had won was meaningless in the face of economic inequality. 
a small group had concentrated into their own hands an almost complete control over other people's property, other people's money, other people's labor, other people's lives. For too many of us, for too many of us throughout the land, life was no longer free, liberty no longer real. Men could no longer follow the pursuit of happiness. Okay, again, here he is beginning this redefinition of freedom. Um, and he is defining the opponents of freedom as being concentrated wealth. Um, and this is where Foner gets his quote from, that this is what is this concentrated wealth and not political tyranny is what is stopping freedom in the United States today. Let's do the next one. Against economic tyranny such as this, the American citizen could only appeal to the organized power of government. We well remember that the collapse of 1929 showed up the despotism for what it was. And the election of 1932 was the people's mandate to end it, and under that mandate, it is being ended. So here he is making explicit this redefinition that it is the government that people can appeal to to stop this um, uh, uh, denial of freedom. Of course, there were many political radicals who were saying, yes, government can do that, but the only way really to do that is to overthrow the, um, the uh, uh, economic royalists, the people who were uh, controlling the economy. Uh, so that this was uh, the essential that uh, had to be done. But he's pointing, it's the government that can, can, that can protect people. Next part. The royalists I have spoken of, the royalists of the economic order, have conceded that political freedom was the business of the government, but they have maintained that economic slavery was nobody's business. They granted that the government could protect the citizen in his right to vote, but they denied that the government could do anything to protect the citizen in his right to work and his right to live. Today, today we stand committed to the proposition that freedom is no half and half affair. If the average citizen 
is guaranteed equal opportunity in the polling place, he must have equal opportunity in the marketplace. Okay. One of the things that makes Roosevelt such a brilliant politician is that he identifies these um, giant capitalists with the loyalists of the American Revolution. <laughs> By talking about economic royalists, ties them to the crown, he ties them to the loyalists in the uh, American Revolution, and so you have this uh, you know, really wonderful reconception of what the government can do and how the government can uh, play a role in expanding freedom, defending freedom, guaranteeing freedom. And this is, uh, as many of you explored in your letters, very, very key. And notice also we had a discussion of slavery, I know in this earlier part, he, he talks about here economic slavery. He is using that, that rhetoric himself in here as well as you find people in, uh, in, the, um, in the letters using, using this, uh, this rhetoric. Um, I wanted to, to finish up by talking about um, what was not done in the New Deal, what uh, limitations there were in, in the New Deal, and to um, start by saying that the New Deal was a coalition, and it was uh, a new coalition that was forming at, uh, at this time, and it was also an unstable coalition. Um, it was made up of liberal reformers, um, many of the people who you've examined in the progressive era went on to be involved in, in the New Deal. Uh, a lot of the social workers, uh, for, for example, and feminists. There were the old machine politicians who were a backbone of Roosevelt's coalition in, in urban areas, and many, many of the same people who were being opposed by those reformers in the, uh, in the progressive era. Uh, there were immigrant workers um, who were becoming or had become industrial workers, Jews, Italians, Poles, Greeks, uh, etc. Um, people who had migrated um, in the period 1890 to um, 1920 from Europe. Um, and they became a major player in the reform movement of uh, the, the United States during the New Deal. And remember, they were the object of Americanization during the Progressive Era. But here, they are the agent of Americanization. It was not the imposed Americanization of um, the early 1900s. But here you had these different immigrant groups uniting together with people of different nationalities in the labor movement, in unions, to affect change and to push the New Deal to the left and push the New Deal in this redefinition of, of American freedom. This is also a period when African Americans in the North are shifting over to the Democratic Party. That uh, you had um, African Americans 
tied uh, up to this time to the party of Lincoln, the Republican Party. But one of the major changes that takes place during the New Deal is the movement of African Americans in the North from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. In the South, of course, overwhelmingly, African Americans are disenfranchised. They are not able to vote. But in the North, they are able to vote, and they go to the New Deal, in part because of uh, some New Deal policies that, for the first time, include African Americans, even though, for African Americans, it is a halfway measures kind of of discriminations and uh, segregation that continue to exist in New Deal policies in the North that um, Ellen mentioned uh, earlier. Um, you also had in this New Deal coalition Southern whites. Um, Southern whites um, had been a traditional element in the in the Republican part in the Democratic Party since uh, the Civil War. And they were the most conservative element in the uh, Democratic Party. And as Foner points out, Southern power in Congress, and they had a great deal of power because they controlled many of the uh, congressional uh, committee chairs, they, uh, their power in Congress meant that the boundaries of American freedom continued to be defined by race. It also meant that the New Deal itself, beginning really in 1938, is undermined in major ways by those Southern um, uh, Democrats. And it, the New Deal is virtually over as a major force for reform um, by 1938. So I'm just about out of time, but I want to just go on to this last point, and that is what was left undone in the New Deal, and to take an example here of the New Deal's agricultural policy. You all know that the New Deal paid farmers um, not to produce. Um, and by paying farmers, they were not paying the tenant farmers, they were not paying sharecroppers, they were paying the owners of land. And this meant, in the South especially, that uh, you had a situation where uh, the um, tenant farmers, sharecroppers, um, whites as well as blacks, but uh, especially African Americans, were pushed off of the land. And they moved to um, urban areas in the South. Um, and it was a major migration, um, as major as the migration of Okies from uh, the Midwest to uh, California. And the, um, the involvement of those migrants in urban areas um, became extremely important in ways that I'll talk about in a second. But also there was active resistance by African-American sharecroppers in the South against the, the, their displacement, against their discrimination. There was a, you know, major movements in the South 
uh, Southern, tenant, Southern Tenant Farmers uh, Organization, for example, extremely important, um, defending their rights with guns at this time, major, major activities in the South. And even though Southern policies were not changed to a very great extent during the New Deal, these failures of the New Deal, these limitations of the New Deal, played a major role in the civil rights movement of the 1940s and 1950s, um, the new urban uh, black population in the South, the, the rhetoric of the New Deal of freedom, um, energized black-white cooperation in the South, energized black organizations in the South, and these came to fruition in what we know of as the great civil rights movement of uh, the 40s and 50s. So I think I will um, end there um, and give you a chance to uh, talk to me, uh, ask questions, comments, criticisms, whatever you would like to do. Thank you very much.